Apostle John, God is speaking to a church. I'll read the passage first. This is verses 1 to 3. And then I want to go through it in some detail. So John is instructed by the angel, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. And there was an angel over each church. There were these seven angels, an angel over each church. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. The seven stars representing the churches. And uh, the sevenfold spirit of God, some would say, harks back to um, Isaiah 11.2, where there's a prophetic word actually about Jesus who would carry the spirit of the Lord. He'd carry wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. That's seven. And as I said, it refers to Jesus to whom God gave these seven spirits, as it were. Anyway, to the church, write this. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. (laughs) Wake up! Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Well, a little bit about Sardis. Like so many of the cities where these letters were written, Sardis was a centre of pagan worship. Um, They all were because they were influenced by the Greeks and the Romans who had multiple gods. But there was one thing different about Sardis. It was open to the Jews. In fact, the city welcomed the Jews into its midst. And the largest synagogue that was built in, in, in in this time was actually built in Sardis. And it was about the size of a football field. So that's a pretty big synagogue. Also, Christians were not persecuted in the city of Sardis. So they were free to practice their faith. Interesting, isn't it? Because this was a dead church. You know what? There's no commendation for this church. You know, the the pattern for for five of the churches anyway is there's a commendation and then a condemnation. But there's only condemnation here. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And even those of you who are left still a little, yet still a little bit alive, are nearly dead. Wake up. Repent, go back to the original. As I was reading that, I started to think, well, where do we fit? Is uh, Ignite Life Church Gold Coast a dead church? Do we have a form of life? 
But is the substance when you scratch beneath the surface dead? I trust not. But I wonder sometimes whether we can get so carried away with the form of church. And I think this is a particular danger for those of us of evangelical and Pentecostal persuasion. We can get so carried away with the form of church that we can sometimes forget the substance of our faith. There was some research done in the United States some years ago that demonstrated that young people often leave the church when they get into their late 20s and their early 30s. They've been through the youth programs. They've had the, the loud music and the bright lights, but they haven't had good, strong, foundational, biblical teaching. And in fact, often people will migrate to the place where the music is loudest and where the lights are brightest, where there's the most fun. In the United States nowadays, the average attendance at Pentecostal churches, we're talking here about the larger Pentecost, that people turn up once every six weeks. Now, that indicates to me that they're consumers. They treat church in the same way that they treat a ball game or a sale at the hyper shopping centre down the road from home. If they can't find anything better, they go to church. Now, I, I think that's evidence of a dead church. Now, I, I, don't, I like quite loud music, by the way. And, and I like, I love it. I love it. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have it at all. Um, I, I mean, I've been to churches which, which there are live churches, all right. You can kind of feel the music in your body. Seriously, you can. You get the vibes, you know what I mean? And, and the lights, I, I love that. But you see, there has to be substance as well. And we, we won't hold our young people in church unless we give them a foundation. And we need, I believe, to teach our people that they are not meant to be consumers. The kingdom of God is not about consuming. The kingdom of God is actually about investing. The, the, the metaphor of the farmer runs all the way through the Bible. You know, the metaphor of the sowing of seed, the tending of the crop, and then the fruit. And I suspect these days that many people want to walk through the doors of a church and pick fruit. That's the, the consumer mentality. A couple of weeks ago, Pekka said, Pekka encouraged us all, be here every week. And, and look, that can sound so condemnatory. You know, why? Because we want to be able to, to, to show we've got numbers of people here or, or um, you know, people are always going to be putting money in the, in the tithes and offering box at the back. Actually, that's not it. Because, as Pekka said, you don't grow if you don't sow. 
And, and part of the sowing is to be committed. I believe it's really important for everybody to be committed to a local church congregation. And that sounds like a big advertisement, I know. And, and I feel a bit... I, I don't want to put it on... This is not about... But this is not specifically about growing Ignite Life Church Gold Coast. I would like it to grow. I'm a pastor. If I didn't want us to grow, I ought not be a pastor. But it's not about growing. It's about growing the church gathered. You can't be effective as the church scattered Monday through Saturday if you're not gathering together to hear the truth of God to be available for Him to work in and through. And there is something really special as we join together and worship and praise God. You know, when, when I came in here this morning, and I was just sharing with people, there's a whole sermon in those three songs that we sang this morning. There was a progression. Now look, I don't know the exact reasons why um, David and Nancy chose those three songs to sing this morning. But when you, when you think about the words, there's a, a flow, a sequence. There was a whole sermon in our praise and worship this morning. And see, I believe God works through that. He works in us and through us. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. We're going to talk about the last letter, of the church, the letter to the church in Laodicea next week. And we remember that one. That was the lukewarm church. Same kind of thing's happening here. What's the antidote to being a dead church? Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. What's that about? It's go back to... The Word. You know, it, unfortunately I get sidetracked often when I'm preparing one of our discussion points and you go off on tangents and one of the tangents I went off as I was preparing this was a, a blog that was written by a national songwriter and he had a girlfriend who was a country singer and he was uh, Catholic by background but she took him off to a Pentecostal church and and he wrote in this blog, there was one line in one song that they sang that he said was rubbish. He actually used a slightly more expressive word for it. And it went something like this. May our worship be as incense in your own heart, O God. And, and he, he said, that's rubbish. And I thought, no. That's biblical. It's a metaphor, sure. I mean, this guy's saying, oh, how can that possibly be? God hasn't got nostrils. God hasn't got a heart like us. And anyway, the heart is just an organ. How can the heart, like, mate, you don't get it. It's a mixed metaphor, sure. But it's biblical. And see, the words, of that, that's one reason why I talked a little bit. What does it mean? I want more of you, Jesus. Because it comes from the Word of God, you see. This guy claims that the words of that song drove you from the church. But you see, if he had a foundation 
an actual foundation in the Word of God and understood the metaphorical use of terms like God's heart and his nostrils and the spell and the incense, he wouldn't have been offended by those words at all. It's a bit of a shame that his girlfriend couldn't understand it either. She just said, it doesn't matter what the words are, it's about how it makes you feel. Sorry, it does matter what the words are. To say it, it that's postmodern, that's got nothing to, to say, it just matters, all that matters is how you feel, that's a postmodern lie. Most of our Christian life, it's not about how we feel, it's about God's truth. And when we live our lives according to God's truth, what we feel is his peace and the joy that passes all understanding. But it's not about how you feel. It's about God's truth. And this is a call. Go back to the foundation. Go back to the foundation. I think one of the evidences of a dead church is the surprisingly high number of fornicators in evangelical and Pentecostal churches. I, I never cease to be amazed at what I hear about what goes on among young people in churches today. Because there's truth. What's wrong? Why aren't they being taught the truth? You see, loud music and bright lights are not the truth, but they can be used powerfully as tools through which we can express God's truth. I I care a lot about the words of the songs we sing. And there are some songs I wouldn't recommend that we sing because their words are not true to the gospel message. At any time we sing a song where I have some question about the words, I try to find out what was on the heart of the person who wrote the song. And I even do that before I try to look at the the biblical or theological foundation of the song. The song we, we sing, Reckless, when that was first produced, there was a lot of criticism of, of the song because theologians said, well, God's not reckless. But Corey Asbury actually went on YouTube and explained how it came about that he wrote the song and what his understanding of reckless meant. We still sing the song. Because I think it does reflect the truth in the Word of God. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. The idea that God would come suddenly would have undoubtedly been clearly understood by the Sardians. Uh, They had a history of losing battles when their guards were not paying attention. There were two or three major battles that they lost because their guards didn't have their wits about them. There was also 
80 years or so prior to when this was written, an earthquake that had come suddenly in the middle of the night and devastated the city. So when God said, I will come suddenly in the night as a thief, not only were the words of Jesus recalled, but also the history of Sardis was recalled. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Why the use of white, the idea of white robes? Well, in, in, in Eastern cultures, of course, the, the temples, there are temples to all of these gods, of course, you couldn't go into a temple unclean, you couldn't go in dirty. And so bathing and then wearing white was an outward symbol of your cleanliness. The idea of the book of life could be related to the practice of registering citizens in a citizen register. And in many cities, if a person was condemned to death for a crime, for a crime, their name was blotted out of the citizen register for that city, and so their name was blotted out for all intents and purposes for the whole of history. And uh, there's a direct reference to the blotting out of names from the Book of Life in Exodus 32, verse 32, uh, and it was part of Jewish Jewish tradition, also part of the tradition of other Eastern cultures like the Sumerians and the Akkadians. And we've seen this last statement, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches because every letter to the churches ends with that exhortation. We have ears listen and understand what the Spirit is saying. I I think this is a very important letter and uh, I'm not criticising any particular church. I think it's a danger and we know from research as I mentioned earlier and this is a particular issue in the United States that young people they love the lights and they love the loud music but if they're not learning the truth they fall away. There is a tendency for young people in their mid to late 20s to fall away anyway. Um, Even those who go to Christian universities. Because around about that age, you start to question everything. And that's about the age where you've got to make a decision about whether whether or not you're just going to inherit the faith of your family or whether you're going to own your faith yourself. So even sending your kids off to a Christian higher education facility will not necessarily stop them from um, falling away. What really, really matters is the foundation that they have. And I love the fact that uh, Gina and, and Dougal have their kids here. 
I love the fact that Napoleon and Emmy have their kids here. I love the fact that little Evangeline runs around here. I love the fact that little Joey runs around here. Because they are actually experiencing foundation. When they go out there for children's church, there is always truth being shared. They have some fun as well, which is a good thing. But there's always truth being shared. And, and uh, my, my heart for the young ones here is, I don't mind if they're a bit disruptive, but it doesn't worry me. Because I want them to feel safe and comfortable and excited about being here. Because they'll carry that. And you know, even if they go off the rails in their, say, their late teens or, or their mid-twenties, statistically, most come back to their foundations. They come back to their foundations. So it's so important that we lay good, strong foundations from birth. In fact, even before birth. We used to play classical music to Ainsley when she was still in Jeanette's womb. And uh, I know that when Ainsley was pregnant with, with Evangeline, she used to play a lot of worship music. Because you know what? Kids can hear it inside the womb. They can hear it. Start them young, eh? It's very important. All right, well, that's uh, the letter to Sardis. God wasn't too happy with the church in Sardis. Let's have a little bit now about the church in Philadelphia. This is a much happier um, letter. And uh, Philadelphia was known as the, the church of faith, the faithful church. And Philadelphia was a, a pretty tough place in which to do church. There were temples everywhere. Um, again, it was the centre of pagan worship. There were temples um, dedicated to the gods Artemis, Helios, Zeus, Dionysus and Aphrodite. Uh, the church like that in Smyrna had apparently been expelled from the Jewish community. So even the Jews didn't want the Christians in their midst. They weren't welcome in the synagogues. And interestingly, there's only commendation for the church in Philadelphia. For the church in Sardis, condemnation for the church in Philadelphia, commendation. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. The one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. The key of David. Um, you'll find that referred to in Isaiah 22.22. Easy to remember that, isn't it? Not only is Jesus the, the root of David, sometimes called the root of Jesse, because David was the son of Jesse, but uh, he's also sometimes, or he's also, I beg your pardon, not sometimes, he's also always regarded of, as the chief steward of the royal household. Now in ancient times in, in Israel, the, the chief steward, he was the person who actually held the key to the palace. The king didn't even. It was the chief steward. It was the chief steward who determined who would go in and who would be kept out. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus is the one who determines who will go into the eternal kingdom and those who 
will be blocked out. So not only is Jesus our Saviour, but He is the Chief Steward of the Kingdom of Heaven as well. And this statement here is so important to the church in Philadelphia because the message goes on. I know all the things you do and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look. I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. So here we have a church persecuted, persecuted by the city, persecuted by the Jews. They are weak, but yet they never never watered down their commitment to God and to His truth. You obeyed my word and you did not deny me. We've come across this expression Satan's synagogue before. The synagogue of leaders who wrongly claimed that they acted for Israel's God and marginalised the Jewish believers. And we look at this, this whole idea that those who say they are Jews but are not will actually come down and bow at the feet of the Gentiles. This was a pretty unusual turn of phrase because back in Isaiah, God had promised Israel that the Gentiles who had attacked them would ultimately come and bow at their feet. But here the tables are turned. The Jews who rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and who turned out the followers of Jesus Christ among their number, this verse actually says they will come and bow at the feet of Gentiles. A total turnaround. The faithful church. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the names of my God and they will be citizens of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God, and I'll also write on them my new name. The new Jerusalem, of course, will come, will come to later on as we work our way through the book of Revelation. It's interesting that in verse 10 there is a promise of protection from the great time of testing. Many versions of the Bible would call that the tribulation. Now it's interesting to read that the commentators and the, the learned scholars who have written about this, uh, some say it actually applies to the time of persecution during John's day. So the promise was to the Church of Philadelphia that they'd be okay during this time of testing. 
Other writers are adamant that it refers to the tribulation at the end of human history at the time in which Jesus returns to earth to fully consummate the kingdom of heaven on earth. I tend to go along with the latter, but I suppose that's because I want to. We will talk a little bit more, quite a lot more actually, about the idea of rapture in a few weeks' time. But I, I do believe that the rapture will come and it will come early in the tribulation period. And uh, there are lots of writers who would disagree with that and various writers would say, well, it comes mid-tribulation and some would say that we're going to go through the whole of the tribulation and we'll be raptured at the end of that. But more, I'll have more to say about that in a few weeks' time. But whether this promise applied at the historical time during which the letter was written or whether it applies to the church metaphorical, the faithful church metaphorically uh, during the Great Tribulation, I guess ultimately only time will tell. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. How encouraging is that? I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. The crown is um, representative of eternal reward. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. You know, one of the great, great things about our faith, things like the peace of God that passes all human understanding, the joy of the Lord that the world can't understand, no one can take that away from us. We can only allow it, uh, well, we can allow it to be robbed, but no one can take it away from us. It comes because of our relationship with Jesus. And there are countless stories of people in the most depriving of circumstances who nevertheless have peace and they have joy. Some unimaginable circumstances, but they've understood. Many of these are stories of prisoners of war who are deprived of food and and clothing and appropriate shelter, who are beaten daily and often worked literally to death. Yet nobody, nobody could take from them the peace and the joy of the Lord. And so it should be for us. Hold on to what we have so that no one will take it away from us. There's another metaphor used here, the the notion of pillars in the the temple of God. Remember that the church in Philadelphia had been rejected by the Jews. So they weren't allowed into the synagogues. They weren't allowed into the temple. But see, God says, don't worry about that. You're in my temple and you're in my temple forever. You are pillars. You know, a pillar is necessary to hold a building up, right? We often call them load-bearing walls in the kind of architecture we we use here today. But you take a load-bearing wall away, a building will collapse. You take the pillars away, one of these temples would collapse. And interestingly, uh, pillars often had inscriptions on them. And they were inscriptions associated usually with prosperity or peace. (laughs) 
to the promises that we're made as sons and daughters of the living God. And these pillars that God's talking about, these, these pillars, the Christians of the church in Philadelphia, the faithful ones, three names. The name of my God, probably Yahweh, referring to the God of the ancients. The, the name of the New Jerusalem, that is looking forward into the prophetic future. And, uh, sorry, the, I should just point out that the New Living Translation doesn't refer to the New Jerusalem as a name, but most other translations do. So that's the second name. And then the third name is my new name, the new name of Jesus. I did a bit of research on this, and I've actually come to the conclusion we don't know what it is. There's lots of speculation, but I think it doesn't really matter, does it? If we don't know what the new name of Jesus is. But what matters is the promise that God has made to the faithful. You will be pillars in my temple. That's better than being a pillar in any other temple. You will be pillars in my temple. And uh, if you want to do the historical research, if you go back and look at um, Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 56, you'll see reference to the idea of pillars being so central to the strength and stability of uh, the building. So here we have two highly contrasting letters. A comfortable church in Sardis where there was no persecution, and yet it was a dead church. A church in Philadelphia which was not only persecuted by the pagans but persecuted also by the Jews. And it's a faithful church. A church to whom God makes great promises. Remember, way back when we began our discussion on the book of Revelation, I mentioned the three different levels of understanding. The first being the historical context. So these letters applied to real churches in a real period of history. Second, application to the church in general. And third, application to us as individuals. And although it might make us feel uncomfortable, I think we should ask ourselves, are we more like the church in Sardis or the church in Philadelphia. That does make us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? I have to confront that myself. Is it substance? Or is it foundation? Sorry, is it substance? Or is it simply form, substance and foundation as in the church of Philadelphia or is it simply form as in the church inside it. And of course right at the end of this letter, again the reminder anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. What is he saying? To the churches that existed in that period of history. What is he saying 
to the broad church today? And what is he saying to us 